Welcome to another You Centered podcast. This is our Christmas week special, and I am unbelievably excited uh, to have a very important guest uh, with me today, someone that I truly admire. And, you know, when I tell people that I've been here almost 32 years, um, this is a kid I met when in my early years, and um, just a wonderful human being. And let's be honest, he had, uh, he had a rough go of it at a at times and um, obviously we're going to be talking about that we're going to be talking about the subject matter of addiction and i'm just so proud of the man that that he has become over the years um and he's here today to really spend some time on christmas week talking about a, a subject matter that a lot of people don't want to talk about can't talk about uncomfortable to talk about um especially this during this time of year uh, i think um as i told you off Air. I told my guest, um, you know, I've been living with this. I have a 39-year-old nephew uh, living on the streets of Boston who has battled addiction since he was 17 years old. And, um, you know, we as a family have tried to do many, many things for him. And I don't know how it's going to end, um, but it's something we continue to work for. And, you know, I'm hoping that my nephew can have um, some successes like our guest. So my guest today is the one and only most people know him as the most famous barber in North Andover right now, uh, Anthony Sideri. Anthony, thank you for coming on the podcast. Rick, thank you so much for having me. It's um huge honor to be here. I, I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and uh, to be sitting here is actually like pretty pretty cool. I've done a lot of different speaking things, but this is... Uh, actually amazing so thank you yeah and anthony uh obviously i've known anthony forever but uh one of the best things that anthony does is gives back to our community talking to our youth and we're gonna be talking a little bit about that so anthony for people that may know you as uh just uh the wonderful father to two beautiful girls and running the restoration uh business in town here a little bio on who you are sure so um uh, again anthony sideri i grew up in north andover i grew up um Originally on Salem Street, way out on Salem Street, uh, so took a bus to school every day, and um, I'm 37 years old. I graduated high school in 2000 from North Andover High, the old North Andover High. They uh, redid it a couple of years later, and um, live in town now in an awesome neighborhood with an amazing wife who also grew up in town, Jenna, and um, my two daughters, Eva and Audrey, and we just got a dog, Balto, so now we're like all, you know, one big happy family, and... Um, I own Restoration Barbershop in town, and I have to say, if anyone that comes to the shop is listening, I'm so grateful to have the customers that we have. Everyone is so amazing, and the amount of support that we get at the shop, it, it, it makes our life amazing, and I thank everybody for that. And we're going to talk a little bit about Anthony's business later in the podcast. And, uh, you know, people knowing that I know Anthony, I get all these phone calls. Uh, you know, how can I get an appointment with Anthony? And uh, some great things happening with his business and it's growing and more Bob is there. And hopefully we're going to be able to take care of everyone in town's needs uh, of getting their hair cut. So, Anthony, you know, nice, quick bio. Um, but we want to get into your story. And this is something that you spend many hours talking to our north end of a high school kid as well as other groups within the community um, and obviously things are going great for you but let's talk a little bit about growing up in North Andover and quite frankly the Anthony Sideri story. Sure so um, this story usually is a long version and I'm going to give you guys the quick um, kind of like breeze through version that you're going to get the gist of and it it's going to give you everything you need to know 
and then we can go in depth and, and anyone can talk to me at any time about anything ha having to do with addiction and I'd be willing to help. So um, I used to be a heroin addict and uh, I was a heroin addict for a pretty long time. Um, but if you had asked me, you know, the freshman at North Andover High version of me, um, if that would ever happen, I would say absolutely not. Never in a million years. I had never done anything. Uh, so, so let me just start by saying I grew up playing hockey and, and this is important because, um, sports were important to me. Getting good grades were important to me. I was on the varsity hockey team as a freshman. And, um, just to give you an idea of how I was, I never said a swear in my life until my sophomore year in high school. Um, I never drank. I never smoked weed. Um, I got good grades. I played sports. I, I went home every day after school. I had dinner with my family every night um, and just never saw it coming. Um, finally went out, you know, to a party for the first time my sophomore year in high school, um, was offered a beer um, from a senior. And it was it happened to be the captain of the hockey team at the time, someone that I looked up to. And, um, and that's where it all started. As simple as that, because... That night that I went out, as as stupid as it sounds, I practiced in the mirror how to say no in a cool way. I wanted to say no. I still had my dare certificate hanging on my wall from like Officer Tracy, like who brought us through this just say no to drugs program. I was a sophomore in high school with, with my dare certificate hanging on my wall. And this kid offers me a beer and I said yes before he stopped asking. And I, I didn't want to. I just was more afraid of how people would think of me if I said no. And, um, and I think a lot of my problems stemmed from caring what other people thought. It wasn't peer pressure. It, it, it was in a way. Peer pressure to me at the time was just me caring what other people think. I, I was worried about it. I was always worried like, am I wearing the right thing? Am I saying the right thing? Am I acting the right way? Like, am I fitting in? And going to a party, having a beer... I was fitting in and nothing bad happened. Like, that's the thing. I was super comfortable. Uh, I was in a big house and with people from town and, you know, it was all fine. And I didn't get in trouble and nothing bad happened. I ended up smoking weed that night just because someone else was. And um, fast forward, I started drinking and smoking weed on the weekends, partying, going out with friends, not thinking it was a big deal at all. Um, never really getting in trouble, you know, never getting caught by my parents um, and not seeing other people get in trouble too. Always thinking it was like super comfortable. Um, so fast forward, I graduated North Andover High. I was kicked off the hockey team my, um, my senior year because I was academically ineligible. I was smoking weed every day. Um, I was drinking every weekend, but only on the weekends. There were other kids smoking weed every day that weren't getting bad grades. There were other kids drinking every weekend that weren't getting kicked off sports teams. I probably should have seen some red flags, like some things that were different with me than with other people. Because honestly, like not every kid that drinks and smokes weed is going to become a drug addict. But if there's a chance, is it worth it? You know, so I think that's like what I try to hammer home when I go and speak at schools. But so um, I got out of high school, um, went to a party at a college with the hockey team and this was a division one college so some of these players are like going to the nhl you know they were all the best players in their town 
and someone had a prescription pill bottle and I was offered a Percocet and I didn't know what it was. There's a lot of opioid education right now in the schools. There wasn't a ton when we were there. Exactly. I wasn't like scared of it. Uh, it looked pretty safe. It was in a prescription pill bottle. It looked safe because of the party I was at, the kids I was with, everything about it felt safe. And I always say, I wasn't being offered a crack pipe from a homeless guy under a bridge. I was being offered a prescription pill from a bottle from a Division One hockey player. So I took it. And um, that sparked a whole new way of partying for me. Now I took Percocets, I drank, and I smoked weed. Then I started taking OxyContin. Then I switched to heroin. Then I started shooting heroin. And uh, it all manifested my addiction you know, came to a head when I robbed a bank. And um, that was at my absolute rock bottom. I was basically homeless. I was sleeping on someone's couch and I never saw any of it coming. And anybody you ask in any addiction story, at some point or another, they'll say, before I knew it, it was this bad. And it really happens like that. Like that Percocet for me, having drank and smoked weed all through high school, that Percocet was such a small step, but then I started like taking more of them and I probably should have noticed, but I saw other kids crushing up pills and sniffing them. So I always thought like, oh, wow, those kids are worse than me. I'm not sure. that bad. Isn't it always like great to look at someone else and think they're worse than you and like justify for yourself that what you're doing is not that bad. So I was always able to do that. I was always able to look at other people and say, wow, well, they're doing more than me or they're doing it that way. Like I looked at sniffing pills as like, whoa, that guy's doing drugs. I'm just taking a pill, like right. no big deal. And then by taking more and more pills, when I finally crushed it up for the first time and sniffed it, it was kind of a small step. I had already taken it a bunch of times and been high and like, you know, it didn't seem like that big of a step. And that's the thing too that I, that I, I don't understand about, about now kids trying heroin in high school. Like that's a huge step, step just right. to try heroin, like out of the blue. Like even when I was sniffing Oxycontin, like addicted, I, uh, I told myself I would never do heroin. Cause that to me was like, even that word heroin was like a scary, like, but there was talk of it. So when I was doing Oxycontin, I remember specifically there was this news special and they had advertised this news special all week. I don't know if it was like Chronicle or 60 Minutes, like something like that. All week long, they're advertising the opioid epidemic in the North Shore. And it was like a big deal. And I remember watching it when it came out. And it was all about kids in the North Shore getting addicted to Oxycontin and switching to heroin because it was cheaper. And that was like the underlying thing because it was cheaper. Now, everyone in this documentary or in this news special was from Peabody, Saugus, East Boston. Nobody was from North Andover. So right. I looked at that. I watched the whole thing. I watched basically what my life was going to become. And I said, that'll never happen to me. And I think that's what a lot of people say too. People hear my story and say, well, that'll never happen to me. But it happened to me. And I thought it would never happen to me. And, and I think my story shows that it can happen to anyone. So I got arrested for the bank robbery. Um, I had to do some time in jail. Um, I ended up getting out of jail, going to a rehab, going back to jail with a year clean and sober, spending a couple years in jail and getting out with a three-year sober foundation 
that I've built on since, and I've been clean and sober now for over 12 years. It, it's amazing, you know, and again, I, by being the youth director here, I kind of lived that through you. I saw it. I mean, I was, I was heartbroken with the stuff that I was hearing about you. Let me tell you, as a community social psychologist, I, I, I look at it all the time as what could we as a community done better for Anthony or for other people? Um, during the time when it was all first starting and, you know, your family as well as this community, how was it looked at by your family and the community? Did, did we miss things? What could we, going fast forward now, what could we have done better to help the young Anthony Sideri that it didn't get to where it got to after you graduated high school? You know, that, that's such a good question, and it's a question that I get at a lot of different schools and a lot of different communities that are doing outreach to parents, like what can we do better? And, and, and talking to a kid is hard. <laughs> There's probably nothing you could have told me that would have convinced me that that was even a possibility. But I do think, so in my household, um, and to no fault at all of my parents, but because parenting's hard, parenting, no one really knows what to do. Everybody's winging it, right? You just, you do the best you can. You go based on how you were parented as a kid and you you try to, you know, don't do the things you didn't like and, and try to do the things you liked. But my parents didn't talk to a ton of other parents and um and they did when i was young but more so like in high school um i got in trouble a couple times and uh, and specifically i got in trouble once um in my hockey bag i had like um you know weed smoking paraphernalia it happened to be like a hookah it was like sure. multiple tubes and my parents like opened my hockey bag and was like oh my god what is this and i said oh that's not mine i said i'm holding that for a friend and they said, you know, it was a big deal. They, they sat me down and, and, and the way a parent should, right, sit down, talk about it. But I blamed it all on this other kid. And I said, I'm holding it for him. And I don't do that. He does. And, and he got in trouble. So he wanted me to hold it. And I had this huge story, which we can get into later. But the lying comes very naturally when sure. you're, when easy. you're it, it's easy. And, and, and once you get good at it, you're manipulating everyone everywhere you go all the time. Because you want what you you want to do what you want to do, and you don't want anyone to stop. I, I don't even know if you remember this. You and I had a conversation oh, at that time um, because I was hearing things absolutely. like I usually do, and I I remember you coming up um, to the old uh, the old youth center, and uh, we're sitting down, and I have to be honest with you, bro. You were so convincing to me that my information was wrong, um, that it wasn't your stuff, and I remember sitting there saying. Is he bullshitting me? Is he telling me the truth? Is he being really screwed over by a situation? Or was he just screwing me over at this point in time? And you know I love you, but when you when you left that day, I said, he's lying to me. And But you were convinced that you were telling me the absolute truth. For sure. And that's the thing about, about lying. When you really believe it's true, you, you can lie to everybody. And and I should say, Rick, and we can talk about this in, in a little bit too, but you, you helped a lot. And you tried to help a lot. And I think... Like you're probably, you have your finger on this town in a way that other people don't. You can see through some of the things that are going on to like what's really going on. And, um, and the amount of outreach you did for me was amazing. But I don't, I just don't think, first of all, I wasn't that far along yet. All I was doing was drinking and smoking weed like a lot of other kids. So like, 
you know, I remember telling you, you know, what you could be heading to and you were like, but that's not me. And you, you, you eloquently just talked about that a little while ago. Like you couldn't relate it to getting worse. For sure. Um, And the interesting thing is we drifted a little bit after that um, because you had your own intentions of what you were doing. And it wasn't until later that I was feeling like how bad it really got worse. So let me ask you though, you know, you went through such a hard time and your resiliency, like I started off by talking about my nephew and I told you offline, I don't think that's going to end favorably. I'll be honest with you. Um, but you ended up really getting through this and building a life. Um, when, when did you really, I mean, it was, you talk about the bank robbery, you talk about spending some time in jail. You talked about getting, you know, clean to a certain degree. What else happened during that period of time that made you look in the mirror and say, I got to get my shit together? For sure. So I was, I was asked that same exact question, um, from a CNN reporter when I did this big, um, and this was, this was a huge honor. It was, it was, um, I remember that it was nationwide. Um, they picked one recovery story and they, they were able to feature my story as, as a recovery story, you know, someone that came out of it. And the, and the woman that was interviewing said like, what was your moment of clarity when you decided to quit? Now I had a moment like that when I, when I knew what I was doing was bad. And it was, um, I was in, I specifically, I was in Cambridge and I was in a basement apartment and I was, um, and I'm going to get pretty graphic, but I was shooting heroin. I was shooting cocaine. Um, anything really. It was, it was once you're, once you're in the grips of addiction, it's anything to take you out of yourself. Real life has a lot of responsibility. Taking drugs puts you in this fantasy world of not caring about anything. So I was, I was doing anything and everything and like, couldn't be bothered with real life, like didn't care. But this particular night turned into a morning and I started seeing through the basement apartment windows, which were at the top of the, the, the walls, you know, people walking by. And I realized like, those people are going to work. <laughs> it was like a weekday. Yeah. It was like a Tuesday morning and these people are going to work. And here I am like, so literally like if this was a movie, like that's my life passing me by. So I decided to quit. And that was about three months before the bank robbery. So every morning I would wake up and I would be going through withdrawals because there's a huge mental component to addiction. And, you know, having gone through like classes and all this stuff, there's a science to addiction that, that affects the chemicals in your brain. And it's, it's not entirely a person's fault. Once they're in the grips of addiction, it's you're, you're doing it because the chemicals in your brain are messed up, but there's also a physical addiction to heroin, especially where you're sick when you don't have it. And a lot of people look at someone using heroin and say like, geez, that guy's life's a mess. Why doesn't he just stop? Right. It's not that easy. So I used to wake up every day and say, you know what? I'm going to quit. But I'd be going through withdrawals. I would shoot heroin and I'd say, okay, that's it. I quit. I'm done. I flushed heroin down the toilet before, erased the drug dealer's numbers. Like all the things to like, I quit, I quit. And then later in the day, start to go through withdrawals and like try to rip the toilet off the wall, like to try to get like, and just... It, that's how crazy and how powerful it is. Um, so that moment of clarity was huge to know that what I was doing was wrong. But when I got arrested and I was thrown in a jail cell 
then brought to Middleton, put in an orange jumpsuit, and had to go through withdrawals like on a jail cell floor for three days, like cold turkey, no medication, no detox. That's when my life really kicked in and I said, I'm never going to do this again. Now, there are way more steps to it because there's a huge difference between not doing drugs and being in recovery. And you know that. Absolutely. You know, you know, there are people that say like, oh, no, I stopped. I'm all set. You're not really all set. You're never all set because that addiction lives in me always. So I haven't had a drink or a drug or anything. I, don't, I, I went through like major dental like stuff with no anything because I'm scared sure. to put anything in my system because it's always there. And who knows what's going to happen? I have a family. I have like so. Um, but I specifically remember and this is an attitude that people can take in life for anything in life addiction, a job, sports, anything. I was in the Salvation Army with a hundred guys. And that's after I got bailed out. I had to go to rehab. So I was clean and sober for, I don't know, three or four months. And there were speakers coming into the Salvation Army every night to speak to the people in there, hundred guys. And they would always say like, guys, this is how you stay clean and sober. And this is the, this is the recovery process. And this is this. And they would always say, statistically, one person in this room is going to stay clean and sober for an extended period of time. And without hesitating, I would say it's me. And I wasn't saying it's me because I'm better than everyone else. I'm saying it's me because I'm going to work harder. I'm not going to let it beat me. I'm not going to let like a little like life problem spark a relapse. I'm not going to let like, you know people say like a broken shoelace, right? People hold in all their emotions and hold them in and hold them in and then they break a shoelace and the world's over. It's like, that's what broke the camel's back. So I was just willing to work harder and put in the time to be in recovery. And I live my life today still in recovery, like trying to be the best version of myself every day. That's the resiliency. And that's where like, like my life comes from because I wouldn't have the life I have today if, um, if I didn't live my life like that. So I want to talk a little bit about your resiliency. So how many years has it been that you're a drug free now? So it's been uh, last July was um, 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. Amazing. Um, how do you continue to work your program? It's been 12 years drug free, but it's, you know, it's something you still work on a daily basis. How do you do that? What are the things that you do to help you with that? For sure. So, um, it all started with the Salvation Army, really. The place saved my life. I mean, they teach you how to be in recovery. They teach you how to be the best version of yourself. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, so I go to meetings, um, either Alcoholics Anonymous or, or different types of meetings, church, stuff like that. It's just something that keeps me connected to the world that I came from. It's people who are all going through the same issues and we just talk to each other about it. It's a support group. It, there are support groups for a lot of different things out there. Sure. These meetings are just support groups for people who are in addiction. And some of the people you meet are amazing people. Like my story is one story of a lot of success stories out there. I'm just willing to talk about it more because I want to raise awareness for the kids that are struggling or for the parents that have a kid that's struggling or someone that's not even struggling yet that might someday something might happen. So... Um, I also wake up in the morning and I read um, the Daily Bread. So this is like um, 
I go to church. I believe in God. I believe everything happens for a reason and I don't want to get too deep into it, but that's, sure. that's a huge part of my recovery. So the daily bread is just a small reading every morning to keep me connected to it. Um, I did that in jail. I used to wake up earlier than everybody in jail. And that's, that's the thing about working harder. Like, you know, I think the rock says it right. Like be the hardest worker in the room. It is as easy as that. Just work harder than everybody. I used to wake up earlier than everyone on the jail block. I used to be in the corner with my Bible, with a couple other readings, and just trying to get my head right, trying to get in, in, in a mindset for the day to overcome the environment I was in. That's a very bad place. But, but by doing that, I actually changed the way a lot of inmates think at the time. I ended up starting a group, uh, a Bible study group that grew and grew and grew, and it became this really cool, positive thing. And, um, and in a way... I gained more respect than most people in the jail at the time, but not for being this big tough guy. It was for being a good guy right. for like doing what I said I was going to do and being a harder worker than everybody. And people noticed it. Um, so I try to still do those things today. I think that happens a lot where early on people in recovery do a certain thing. Like this is how I got clean. But now that I'm all set, I'm all set. And you stop doing it. I think you got to continue to do those things. And you, you have some other ways you do it, um, and we're going to talk about two of them. You know, one is I've been in a number of different audiences of having you uh, talk to kids at North Andover High School and other schools, and then obviously some of the stuff that people don't know that you're doing behind the scenes on a daily basis, helping you know kids that we know together that are struggling and everything else. Tell me how you got so passionate about going back to the high school that where it all started for you in terms of having difficulties and things like that. And you've, you've spoken to health classes, you've spoken to school assemblies. I know we've done a number of different opiate things that you've been the guest speaker at. Tell me why you're so passionate about that with our kids in North Andover. So that's a, it, it means a lot to me that you notice that kind of stuff and that, that I am passionate about it because I truly believe and like people are going to think I'm crazy. I truly believe that we can solve the drug problem worldwide by starting in a town like this. Keeping kids from trying drugs for the first time is going to spark more keeping kids from trying it and keeping kids from trying it. And eventually nobody's trying drugs anymore and we're all just being normal and like living a great life. Because honestly, I have two daughters. They're six and three. By the time they're in high school, I need this to not be a problem. And that's why I'm passionate about it. I need us to solve this problem. And I need the help of all the people, even the kids who are who are trying vaping and smoking weed and doing all this stuff that eventually you and I know are going to lead to something exactly. else. Not in every kid, but why risk it? We know it's going to lead to something else. And I need that to stop so that my daughters and all the other young people can have a pressure-free drug-free environment when they get to high school that's why i'm passionate about it and i think my story isn't special my story is 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 a common story that i'm just willing to tell but my story shows a lot of things it shows my experiences i like to talk a lot in depth when i go to the schools about the emotions that i had like in high school like the feelings of anxiety and feelings of fitting in and like like the thought process of trying it for the first time and all that stuff. But I also think um, finding the strength to make the decision at the time 
that I was going to be the one out of a hundred that was going to make it. And the end of the story, the hope, there is hope after addiction for anyone. I'm even talking about the, the, the rock bottom guy who's homeless, his family's given up on him and everything. I know that guy can be successful if he puts his mind to it because anyone can do anything they want if they put their mind to it. And, and that's, that's what you've been teaching since I was at first in your young men's group right. years ago, which yeah, I'd love yeah. to talk about after. But the, that's the whole idea of my story. It's, and, it's, and it's common in, in the recovery world, but it's experience, strength, and hope. Those are the things I try to deliver and I hope that it gets through. Well, I, I, I've heard you, like I've said many times, but I need to uh, be honest with you. The first time I heard you, I was in the auditorium at the north end of a high school, and uh, I found my, my eyes kind of welling up uh, for, two, for two reasons. Um, I was so proud of the man that you would become after all these demons, and I think my eyes also welled up that I let a look in the mirror and say, what are we as professionals in North Andover? What could we have done more to make your life a little bit easier? And you and I have had many conversations on this that we, there's no one necessarily to blame. Um, we need to continue to work on this. And the second piece that you do, which is overly impressed to me is, um, you know, people hear about your speaking engagements, but what they don't know is how many times you'll meet with uh, people in their 20s and 30s, um, friends, not friends, connections that people know that you're a good guy to talk to and you'll open up your barbershop to, you know, to talk to someone, to try to set them straight. Um, and that happens more than people in this community would know. Um, how, how is that helping you? And do you feel like it's making inroads with some of these people? I hope that it is. Um, yeah, so people would probably be surprised by how many times somebody reaches out to me um, on a weekly basis about someone in their family or someone in you know their friend circle or, or just someone that they know that is struggling with addiction. And they'll say, what can we do? How can we help? Like, can you talk to them? And I'm always willing to help. I think that's, that's a part of it because people were always willing to help me. That's the, that's another thing about recovery and about, you know, going to meetings or, or whatever you do to stay clean and sober, it involves other people. So someone helped me, so I'm willing to help someone else. And I think that's the way the world works. That's how you make the world a better place, right? This chain of sure. like, you know, people that are passionate about things that spreads to other people. There used to be a commercial once about like good deeds. And it was like a guy picking up a piece of trash and throwing it in the, in the, in the trash and someone seeing it and then that person holding a door for someone and then later and it was like this big chain of like good things and i and i think i'm just like a small piece in that chain someone helped me i'm helping others and um and i hope it's working um a lot of times though and you and i just talked about this off air but the the person has to be ready mm -hmm. readiness f to be in recovery is huge um being being sick and tired of doing drugs is a huge part of it because you need to have that kind of like you know being desperate to get better uh, sometimes when it's when it's really bad and and that's too bad um, but there's so much education still to be done I think and, and and in a in an awesome way you were the first town and I don't know if you know you were the first one but you were one of the first towns to do like a parent's awareness, right? Sure. Everyone had me going into schools and speaking to kids. And maybe the kid went home and told their parents and maybe they didn't. But if they were like me, we had a speaker at our high school and I didn't listen to him. Right. I just was sitting there thinking, this will never happen to me. 
He's talking about drinking and smoking weed in high school. He's talking about the things I was doing. And I said, that'll never happen to me. But you did this parents awareness thing. And, uh, and there was a great turnout, actually, yeah. to the point where other towns were calling you. But they were calling me and saying, how did you guys get so many people to go right. to this drug awareness thing for parents? Because like, people see that topic and they think, like, oh, I don't have to go to that. My kid's fine. But I think everyone needs to go because maybe your kid's fine, but maybe your kid's friend's not. And maybe it takes you as a parent of a friend of a friend to notice it. So I think everyone needs to know. We, we used to get frustrated with the attendance of a number of our parent awareness programs. Um, uh, but that was a big one. Uh, that was that. And I remember people from Andover calling me and people from Boxford and, you know, how to get in touch with you and things like that. Um, and I think we're, we're trying to find other ways. And I think that's part of the impetus of this podcast with you today. And we've talked offline and uh, we're hoping to maybe do a, a monthly um, podcast with Anthony as well as other people um, as guests um, to talk about addiction on that. As I told you at the beginning, Anthony, that we could talk for hours and hours on this and obviously we're crank, cranking well into 30 minutes right now. So I do have, I have two more questions for you. Then I want to give the all important final word and, and we always do the final word with our podcast, but this one might be the most profound because I'm going to give you as much time as you need uh, to give people the final word. But let me let me get to two more questions. Um, you know, as you as you getting close, and this is obviously our Christmas week podcast. Is you know, I've known Jenna since she was a really young kid. I've gotten to know your beautiful girls. Um, as we're getting into Christmas week, tell me a little bit about in your fight and sobriety and staying drug free. How important is uh, Jenna and those two beautiful little girls to you? Um, more important than I can even explain. Um, my life today is where it is because of Jenna. I mean, even though I'm in recovery and I was doing great and everything, her giving me a chance makes me grateful every day to literally wake up next to the girl in my dreams. And you know the story. I've been sure. in love with her since like first grade. And we graduated high school together. I never talked to her once. Like that's how in love with her I was. And um to be able to wake up next to her every day is 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 crazy. But um so my gratitude stretches from big things to small things. So I'm grateful to have Jenna and to have two amazing daughters. I'm grateful to live in a neighborhood where I'm looked at as just like a regular guy. I'm grateful to be in this community and to be a part of the community to where people hear this story and say like, wow, I never knew that about you. That's amazing. Instead of like, oh my God, we're not going to talk to you anymore. Sure. You know, because there does come a time in early recovery where you think that's never going to happen. You think everyone's always going to look at you as like the heroin addict or the guy who robbed a bank and and they're not going to let their kids get their hair cut at my place or they're you know you think like that's what's going to happen but to see a community like this embrace someone like me it makes me so grateful like beyond but when it stretches to little things like um little things that people probably take for granted but like real life things cuz I never thought I'd have a house sure. like with a yard and like uh the kid across the street mows the lawn like you know like stuff like that is is so amazing and just the little things like my brand of deodorant because in jail when you have your freedom taken that's huge mm -hmm. and and you don't get to pick which deodorant you use or which toothpaste or like which shampoo it's like it's what they give you and and like to be able to live a life however i want is 
it makes me super grateful. Um, so yeah, but, but first and foremost, it's Jenna and the girls and, and everything I do is for them and you know how hard I work and, yeah. and I'm, and I'm working towards not working so much to spend more time with them because they deserve it. They're beyond amazing. Yeah. We talked offline, you know, my, uh, my little youth services director, uh, advice <laughs> to you that, uh, those little girls going to grow up fast and you don't, you don't want to miss out on any of that. Let me ask you my last question before we get to the final word. I asked this question on a variety of different podcasts, but this one might even be the most profound. Um, you're uh, 37 years old now. Um, what would your 37-year-old Anthony Sideri tell the 16-year-old Anthony Sideri right now to maybe make his life a little bit different than what it became for you? Yeah, for sure. That, that's such a good question because um, there's a quick version of the answer that is, I believe that everything happens for a reason. I love the person that I am today and I am the person I am because of what happened to me. But if I could go back and tell myself something, um, it would start with be true to yourself. Don't care what other people think. Like as a parent now, Jenna and I look at the girls and we think of kids we went to high school with who may not have been the most popular. They may not have been the best athletes. They may not... But you know what? They didn't care what anyone thought. And they were the happiest ones in high school. Yeah. It's the people walking around like with that with that weight of like making decisions based on what other people think or what you think they think, which they may not even care. That's like being in prison. That's like and, and I lived like that for a long time. Um, and I would tell myself, be true to yourself. Who cares what people think? Do you, you know, like just do the best you can. And um, and I would also say play the tape all the way through, right? We make decisions thinking that they're only affecting the now and they're only affecting you, that you're not affecting other people. But the ripple effect of our choices stretch way beyond anything we can even comprehend. The amount of people that are either looking up to you or know someone that you know or, or so many different levels, the choices you make reach out to. And it and it's scary, but... Um, but Doing the next right thing always is the way I live my life now. And that's what I would tell myself because doing what I was doing, drinking and smoking weed seemed harmless and other people were doing it and not all of those people became drug addicts. But for me, was it worth it? Was it worth it to go to every party every weekend? Was it worth it to smoke weed before school? No. And I have a quick story about, about someone who you know that just passed away, sure. who was my best friend all through high school. And nobody else's fault, not his parents, not anyone in his family. He kept doing those things. And people probably looked away because nothing bad was happening. He wasn't overdosing. He wasn't like going to jail. He didn't rob a bank. It was just casually going on and on. And he just overdosed and died about a month ago. And it was devastating. Now, were all those years worth it? Were all those years to look the other way worth it? Just because what he was doing wasn't that bad? It wasn't worth it because now he's not here. There's nothing we can do about it. Right. Let's give you the last word, Anthony. And, you know, when I give people the, the last word, I don't tell them who they should be preaching to on this or who they should be talking to. But, you know, I don't know if this message in the last word will be to kids, will be to families, will be to adults, will be to the people that are struggling right now. 
But what would you like to say to these people as we wrap up this podcast? Sure. So I want to just obviously thank you for having me. This is this was amazing. And and I mentioned quickly the young men's group and we can talk about it on on another episode. I would love to do this more because I think addiction is a huge, um, huge topic that that needs way more than this time. And, and it needs a lot of people's time. But that young men's group um, is something I don't know if you do it now, but it was just such a cool group of guys that you were a mentor to. And there are a lot of mentors in town that would love to do something like that with some some young men in town. But um, for this for this problem that we have, and and you know, make no bones about it, there's a problem in town. And whether you want to see it or not, I think that's part of the problem. I think um, it may be a small problem right now, but it's becoming bigger and bigger. And the fact that kids are trying opiates with all the information that's out there. And all the, how public my story is and how everyone knows how it ends. And you just said it about, about someone that you know, like, you know, it's not going to end well, but people are still doing it anyway. And I think there needs to be more talk. Um, going back to that story about, about my parents finding the paraphernalia, like I blamed it on another kid and my parents didn't call that kid's parents. They let it lie. They believed me and they just, that was the end of it. But parents need to talk to each other. Like when, when, when you talk about like, it takes a village, it really does take a village. If we come together as one, as a community and everyone knows everyone's business, that helps because the first thing any family that contacts me says is don't tell anyone. And, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think for me, everyone knows my story. How many people around here can hold me accountable if I start slipping, you know? So I think people knowing more about it is a huge help because yes, there's still a stigma around addiction. That's never going to go away. But a story like mine, a story of hope, a story showing that things can be better um, is how everyone's path of addiction should end. And it should all come together as a community, talk about it more, have more groups, let's do more podcasts and, and get the word out that there is a problem stop putting our heads in the sand and and let's solve it because i really do think we can solve the world's drug problem right here in north andover starting right here so well said anthony and uh you know we we started this podcast today talking about how we'd like to take this to a different level um you know two of the most powerful speakers that i've had the opportunity to listen to is anthony sideri and chris heron um who i think have just had a way to reach people um, I think we need to do more of this. It can't just be a one-time podcast. It just can't be a one-time event uh, talking to people. We need to do it on a regular basis. So you and I are hopefully going to put together maybe a once-a-month podcast around addiction. Um, you know, you are such a great resource to our community. Um, I think our community is not like any other community. But one thing I do know about our community is we are willing to address issues. And, you know, people like you and I are willing to put this on the forefront. So they have to address these issues. But um, this has been a phenomenal conversation with you, Anthony. You know my love for you is real. Um, you know what you've done with your life and your beautiful family now. And, 
the way you keep fighting this and you're going to help me as well as help others um, really address this issue in town and we're going to be a better community for it. So um, I want to thank you for coming on Christmas week, special week for us here, special week for everybody. And uh, this was a phenomenal conversation that we had. And I think the key is we need to continue to have these conversations. So thank you again. And as we finish every podcast, we always say too much passion is never enough passion.